the growing calls across the nation to defund the police. To end policing as we know it. Off the charts violence in New York City. 11 people shot in just eight hours on Sunday. This is Sunday. about the police officers, officers who every single day put on that uniform and they run towards danger when we run away from it. Guns up, giddy up, Wolfpack. This is Failure Stop, the Comp Center with Drew Breezy, part of the Failure Stop family of podcasts. It's Thursday night, but Failure Stop starts actually on Monday for our paid subscribers. You can watch Uncuffed with Jay Darrell White and Eric Tanzi as they take on comedy. And on Tuesday night, you have Murder and Mystery and Mayhem also with Eric, but with Andrea up late. And on Wednesday or Thursday, depending on how you take it in, you can watch Last Call with Eric where he breaks down all the news and all the things you need to not sound like an asshole on the weekend. And of course, you're on Thursday, you're in the comm center with Drew Breezy. That's Drew, my co-host over there. 29 years of police and dispatch experience. And we're going to break down a case tonight that's going to be one for the ages. And of course, on Friday, Failure to Stop Proper is our main show. That's how we get it all done. Uh, big case breakdowns. Drew, how are you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing great, John. How are you? Oh, a little frazzled, but uh, I feel good as, as, as usual. Uh, how's your week been? I've missed you, buddy. I've missed you too. Uh, I, I'm, uh, if if I must uh, be honest, I'm a little frazzled myself, but we're we're working through it. I've got a uh, a big trip to Vegas coming up. We got a wonderful show in store for you to tomorrow tomorrow on the breakdown. Uh, we're going to talk. Not just about, uh, well, well, we'll save that for later in the show. I'd like to talk a lot about tonight's show, though, because this is something huge that's happening in the state of New Jersey, in the city of Patterson, to be specific. And uh, this is, uh, I don't know if this shooting flew under the radar or, uh, as you'll see, maybe you'll know why, but um, it does seem that the attorney general in New Jersey has taken control of the Patterson police department as a result of this shooting and some other things that have gone on. And, um, so we just want to have an open and frank discussion about what, uh, our observations are about this shooting to include the 911 calls and the negotiations. John is a 911 dispatcher and a, uh, trained and certified negotiator in the, uh, uh, continental united states i believe yep i could do all of north america and parts of south america that's correct just part of chile uh, Ch yeah well just, more more centralish you know once you get south of the suez they start asking for more papeles before i do negotiations so <laughs> if you don't mind i'll hit off with some uh breaking news it's only about six days old i wish uh, we had broken it uh, earlier but uh this is from uh Earlier uh, this week from Huntsville, Alabama, if you guys recall back in episode 97 of Failure to Stop, this would have been May of 2022. Mike and Eric actually broke down the case of a, a police officer in, uh, I believe, Huntsville. Uh, that was uh, Ben Darby, who arrived on scene uh, at uh, a man with a gun call, and he was forced to use uh, deadly Forced to stop that incident. Well, the Alabama Court of Appeals has reversed the murder conviction of that police officer, Ben Darby, last Friday, uh, sending the case back to trial court. Now, what does that mean, of course? Well, it means, first of all, Ben Darby is no longer a convicted felon, and that's a good start for an officer wrongfully convicted of murder. Uh, but it also means that he has a chance to not only retry the case, hopefully with some new evidence. I know that uh, Kaylin Darby, who came on the show, has talked uh, very frequently about a lot of the evidence that was left out of the trial. 
namely that uh, Officer Darby had some specific training uh, that allowed him to react to the officer who was, or excuse me, to the suspect who was holding a gun. The case law, of course, indicates that you don't have to wait for a gun to point at you before you can use lethal force. I think police officers know that having to use that kind of reaction time uh, would not work in their benefit. Uh, the case is going back to uh, trial. So what that means is that uh, the attorney general in Alabama, he has until April 7th to issue a statement about the case. I know that the uh, local prosecutor, uh, Madison County District Attorney Rob Bussard, he says that he uh, intends to prosecute the case again against Officer Darby in court. You just have to wonder why this prosecutor is going after Officer Darby again. Um, you know, obviously this was sort of a political, a political case to begin with. It would seem that like he made all of his book and uh, you have to wonder why he's going after it again. But Darby was actually sentenced to 25 years in prison. He was convicted in 2021 in the shooting of Jeffrey Parker in his home in 2018. And we learned in hindsight, of course, also that Jeffrey Parker had planned to lure a police officer into his home and to murder a police officer. And when Darby got there, of course, there were other officers there who were violating policy. Something else that was left out of the trial, of course, too, was that uh, Darby's co-workers had to get retrained. And some of those officers even testified against Darby. And I've seen some of the comments that Darby showed up and that was when the situation got worse. So uh, our thoughts and prayers are go out to the Darby family. Certainly, Kaylin Darby is still operating as a police officer. So you just have to think about what she's going through. Uh, she's working hard to free her husband from jail and from prison. And uh, that's another thing. Uh, if you're interested in helping out Ben Darby and Kaylin Darby, you could do so at their website, Stand With Darby. Uh, the Pipe Hitter Foundation is something that's helping them out. Uh, if he goes, if he does not, if he does go back to trial, one thing that's going to be an issue for him is possibly seeing some bond. Uh, it would be very nice if we could get Ben Darby out of jail and back home with his wife, Kaylin. Uh, so if you want to support the Darby's, you know, all the money that you give to them goes directly to the court fees. Kaylin lives off of her salary as a police officer. All of that goes, uh, to, to, uh, Ben's legal defense fund. So go over to standwithdarby.com or you can check out the pipe hitter foundation. I know that fund the first has also backed them up before. So that's just good to hear that, uh, that they were able to get that appeal granted. I know that, uh, many other cases that had gone for appeal in that session had already gotten an answer on that. Uh, Drew is literally having to reboot, so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this case. Um, I watched uh, four and a half hours of footage from the Patterson Police Department uh, to obtain this footage. Uh, something that we've done differently this time than what we have done in the past is instead of scouring the Internet for articles and uh, newsreels and kind of breaking down, uh, breaking down the news about it, uh, I was able to find out that if you contact the attorney general's office in the state of New Jersey, uh, that they can provide certain downloadable links. So what I was graciously given by the attorney's office in New Jersey was essentially uh, all the downloadable media from the case. So that was four and a half hours of body cam footage uh, from at least seven different vantage points. Tonight, we're gonna use at least four of those. Uh, also included was, uh, there's essentially five 911 calls. There's seven audio clips in total. At one point, uh, the suspect in the case is uh, calling uh, nearby police departments because he's not satisfied with what he's getting from Patterson. Uh, so essentially the setup to the story is this, is that uh, one night, uh, Najee Seabrooks uh, comes home at about two in the morning and he seals himself up inside his room 
And uh, early in the morning, uh, he's having some kind of mental health crisis. And uh, the police are called around seven in the morning. It takes police officers a while to respond because as dispatchers and police officers know, there's always quite a bit going on. They were finally able to get on scene uh, with two police officers. They arrived on scene. And what they found as they arrived on scene to a uh, threats call was family members of Najee Seabrooks waiting outside. They were uh, they flagged down the officer. And at first, the officer was confused. She thought that she was actually having two calls in the same building until she realized the family members flagging her down outside were also asking for an ambulance for Najee Seabrooks because uh, own words in the words of her brother and another female there on the scene that uh, he had possibly uh, ingested some cannabis, uh, smoked something bad, and that was uh, it was affecting his mental state. Uh, the point uh, the police officers arrived in the building, Mr. Seabrooks was already uh, essentially locked inside the bathroom. Officers arrived on scene. They found out what was going on with him. As I said, I, he had been smoking something the night before, and uh, he was not responding to calls from family to come out. Najee Seabrooks' mother, other family members, and a child were all there uh, inside the uh, the apartment when the officers arrived. And uh, the body cam footage for us to break down essentially starts when uh, officer makes first contact at the door where Seabrooks is barricaded inside a bathroom at just prior to eight o'clock. Drew, are you are you back with us now? It looks like your microphone may be muted, but you're almost back with us. Drew's almost back with us. Okay, so what we put together is I, I took the information from the attorney general's office, the 911 calls, and I put it together in one video. It was very difficult to get through four and a half hours and find a way to present this to you because we're primarily a podcast. And when you listen to the body cam footage from Patterson PD, what you mostly hear are various police officers at different times standing outside the door saying Najee's name and saying, please come out. For over four, almost four and a half hours, police officers at different times are begging him, asking him to come out. You will talk about some of the negotiation tactics they use. Uh, some of the uh, other tactics, uh, like third-party intermediaries, which are somewhat unusual for situations like this. And you'll see that the claims that be, are being made by the media, that Najee Seabrooks was denied access uh, to people who cared about him, namely his colleagues at his uh, anti-violence police or anti-violence action committee or league that he worked for, uh, that he was being denied access to uh, be able to talk to anyone besides the police was simply not true. I uh, will break down some of that in terms of who he was allowed to talk to in addition to police in the scene. Drew, are you back with us? I think I'm back. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not real crazy about what's going on here, but I think I'm, uh, I think I'm back with you. Okay. Drew, we also, uh, we could do the voicemails at the end if you want, because I've fully introduced the case. Uh, or do we have our media set up ready to go? Are you ready to break down the first 911 call? What's what media? Yes. Uh, hang on one second though. I think, uh, no, I think we can probably handle doing the uh, the voicemails right now, unless you'd rather just go straight into the. Let's just save it all for the end, and we could take some calls too, and pepper in some voicemails. But I speaking think speaking of calls, I know that I've been gone for a while, and I can't uh, underestimate the job that John has done, and he does a great job no matter what. But we're at eight four eight com nine one one. That's eight four eight two six six sixty nine eleven. If you want to nice. give us a call. Please call us and leave us a meaningful voicemail during the week. We would love to hear from you. And then additionally, you can call us live now. So if you agree or disagree with something, we certainly would like to hear you uh, voice your opinion. And we would love to uh, talk to you about whatever you want to talk about. Don't you think, John? 
Well, we especially encourage people to call in on this show. We know this is a, a difficult case. And I guess before we present anything, I do want to say that having watched all of it, I want to say that I'm sorry that Mr. Seabrooks has passed away. This is a regrettable incident. The police didn't want this to happen. I didn't want this to happen. And one thing that uh, I viewed when I viewed all of this footage was I heard his mother cry. I heard his mother talking to him and sobbing and begging for him to come out. Uh, whatever you think of the protests and things that have come out of this, and whatever you think of Mr. Seabrooks and whatever you else you want to say about him, he was a human being that his family loved, his mom loved him, and it's uh, a shame that he's dead. And, and we're we're not here to make light of that, but we want to correct some of the narrative that's been in the news that the police officer simply showed up and uh, in typical police fashion, according to the news, as they just went in their guns blazing. What you'll see from Patterson PD is an amazing display of patience and empathy and going to almost any lengths constantly uh, to find a way to reach Mr. Seabrooks, to find a way to convince him to cooperate. Unfortunately, it was unsuccessful. But you can see that every single person who talks to him, particularly if you watch the full unedited four and a half hours as I did, has a heart for intervening in the crisis and driving a positive change. And if you're a negotiator and certainly a police officer, you can't enter any situation like this unless you have the belief that you can affect a positive outcome. And I saw that from every single police officer that spoke to him. And quite a few of those are in this footage we'll show you tonight. Uh, I, I think this is why we are, <clears throat> excuse me, why we mesh so well together. We are two peas in a pod, and I cannot stress enough. Um, and, and I'm telling you, we didn't really talk before this uh, other than just small banter and me complaining about how horrible my setup is and uh, me trying to get through it. But um, <clears throat> I was going to say pretty much the exact same thing John did. I'm not going to repeat it. Uh, verbatim, but I, I really felt the same way when I watched the footage. And I, you know, here this this guy is in in policing in America. We we've spent uh, however many months or years or whatever trying to recoup what happened after um, George Floyd, whatever you know, w whatever's happened since, and it seems like we take one step up and two steps back and it's not necessarily because of what we're doing wrong. Um, but it doesn't matter, uh, if it's right. Sometimes it's in, in you know, there, there's a whole issue behind, um, body worn cameras that we're probably going to discuss tomorrow. I mean, like, do we need, <laughs> if the public is clamoring for them, um, as they are, I think they probably, they being the public, probably need to start believing what they see when when they see it it's it's like you can't have it both ways um and i think the other part of that problem is they don't know what they're looking at so they they can just pick it apart but it's not you know we're trained differently but one piece one piece of footage that they show constantly and it's and it's less than two seconds was the door to the bathroom is open and you see mr seabrooks inside and they fire a less lethal round and there's a reason for them to do that it's not because they want to hurt him or they want to be mean and he says oh you're going to come at me like that and it's sort of a, an aggressive interplay and it makes it seem like uh, seabrooks is uh makes him seem like he's uh, outraged or angry and it certainly makes him seem like he's in his full right mind but as we'll as we break down this case you could say that it's a mental health crisis there's certainly something going on with him but uh, we'll show the reason for the less lethal discharge all right i, I don't want to switch gears completely i want to give a little background here in addition to your background uh this is something else that we didn't discuss 
uh, Patterson police has, have had their own problems in, in, uh, namely in, let's see, what year was that? 2017. Uh, there was, uh, four officers, a sergeant and three officers who were indicted federally for stealing money, basically for tossing drug dealers and, and taking their money and stealing their money. Um, you know, I could read you the whole case, but I won't. I'll spare you that. I, I can tell you that uh, the sergeant received prison time. I think all four of them pled to something. I, I don't, I'm not sure what the other three got, but I know that the sergeant got um, prison time for, you know, they greed always gets the best of them anyway. And look, uh, how many times we have to say it? There's the only thing we hate more as good cops are bad cops. And, um, they were weeded out. But the problem is that violates the trust of the community. And so just after that, or maybe just before that, uh, I'm not sure what the timing is. I think the mayor was indicted on a separate issue. Um, the community is in turmoil. And so then when something like this happens, this is the point that I'm trying to drive home. When something like this happens with Najee Seabrooks, and we'll, and we'll let you make your own decisions. We'll let you see what we see. But once all that happens, you've lost credibility at that point. <laughs> and no one's going to believe anything you say. And like I said, no one's going to believe the body-worn camera that's literally right in front of you. You, you, you know, this is the video that you wanted. You know, Najee uh, Seabrooks was a, an anti-violence activist within his community. He was trying to do what he could to, to curb the violence or the, even, you know, police violence or, or whatever, however it was perceived. And he was killed by police. So obviously that's going to upset a lot of people right off the bat. But you have to understand that there was a reason behind what happened. This wasn't just, as John was saying, the media portraying, uh, which the media portrayed as just willy-nilly, guns a-blazing, we got tired of waiting, so we just shot this guy. And this is just not what happened at all. So uh, I, I'll put it up, John, and you, um, you can control it, I think. 911. Can I have two cop cars to Mill Street? Hold on. For the people listening, not watching, uh, this is 911 call number one. Najee Seabrooks calls and asks police to come to his residence because he says he's received death threats. I need help. I need help. I need help. You have to tell me what happened. What's going on? Um, I received a lot of... That's right. Uh, I think some people waiting for me when I walk out. So I need help being escorted to my car. So. Okay. Um, who are you receiving these death threats from? Uh, people. What's your phone number? Um, 
What apartment are you in? Can you sing two, please? Tell me some mercy on me. Bye. All right, we're going to get somebody out there as soon as we can. All right, thank you. Okay, so what you hear uh, is a lot of background noise in the comm center. That's kind of showing how quiet Mr. Seabrooks is when he calls 911. But he essentially says, I have an emergency here. There's uh, people here threatening me. Can you send a police officer fast? Again, uh, as a 911 dispatcher, what I'm hearing is a disconnect between the information he's giving me and the way that his affect seems to be responding to the situation. Normally, when people are asking for fast action, and saying uh, that there's an emergency, they tend to be excited. Not always, but it's one thing I'm noticing about the call, Drew. Yeah, uh, the, this is something that I, we discussed this the other day. I, I, the, the people that are watching or listening right now don't have the the benefit of the conversation that we had the other day, but um, dispatchers are OG body-worn camera veterans. Like when body worn cameras rolled out, all of the cops had all of these complaints about, um, and I get it. Look, I mean, you know, the body worn cameras are way more intrusive than what a 911 operator has. But basically, you know, when body worn cameras first came out, there were complaints from the cops that, like, my God, every call that we go to, we're going to be recorded. Like, there are times that we just discuss things with people that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, they're going to be used more to uh, to hang us or to get us in trouble than they are going to be used to uh, for good purposes and blah blah blah. Well, th since the dawn of time, these calls have been recorded. So nine one one dispatchers have always had to endure that. Have always so that's why you'll hear sometimes on the news like this errant you know bad nine one one operator who yells and screams at somebody but or they've got like a party going on in the background and sometimes on the midnight shift that's hard to contain when you're in a room full of people and trying to stay awake and it's uh, it's it's you know it's the manager or supervisor's job to be mindful of that and keep everybody uh, quiet but it's also their job to keep them awake so you, you kind of understand why things uh you know are overheard or whatever so uh, that is a lot of what you're hearing. Okay, so we're going to start with a body cam from officer number one. Like I said, she arrives on scene just prior to about eight o'clock. Uh, we see her go inside the residence after talking briefly with family. The family escort her into an apartment, which is actually below ground on the first floor. So you'll constantly hear Mr. Seabrooks refer to people as being outside or upstairs. That's where his family will eventually be taken to. Uh, but we're going to see our first officer walk into the dwelling, past the family, and go attempt to make contact with Seabrooks. Najee! Yeah. It's Patterson Police. What's up? What's your name? Vicky. It's Ramos. Officer Ramos. Officer yes, Officer Ramos. It's me. No, of course not. So why are you by yourself? I'm not by myself. I have my partner here, Cedric. Cedric. What's going on, bro? We're right here. All right, but why didn't you tell you? I tell you, it's a mercy. What's going on? We don't know what's going on. It's a, it's a mercy. People are trying to kill me. First, uh, he, you know, he, he didn't trust that there was just one of them. Then he heard that there were two of them. Then he was kind of angry that there were two of them. So it's you could tell that he's not in his right mental state. Like, obviously, there's something going on. And then, then the conversation turns real quick about, 
how people are trying to kill him and and whatnot. I need an escort right now. What, where, where are you trying to go? Get the hell out of here. All right, well, ain't nothing going to happen to you now. We're here. Where, where are you trying to go? Uh, you want to come out and talk to us? No. We are the cops. Yeah, so he doesn't well, trust the cops. You got two officers here. We're here right now. Um, <laughs> what do you want my sergeant to do? You want my sergeant to come talk to you? Yeah. All right. Let me see if I can get my sergeant down here. 911. Hello. Okay. So we have two police officers there. And what one tactic that you'll see right away is, is first of all, the problem is for some reason, Mr. Seabrooks doesn't believe they're police officers. He's called for two police officers to escort him somewhere away from wherever he's at because he's receiving death threats. The one officer introduces herself and then, uh, uh, Seabrooks doesn't believe she's a police officer because why are you here by yourself, he says. Seabrooks does this a couple of times where he claims to be an expert of police tactics or procedure. And, it, and I'm not sure if it all gets put into this presentation, but at some point he'll, he'll ask other police officers why they're doing what they're doing. You can see that he immediately says, I want to talk to your sergeant or your supervisor. And the police officers don't argue the point with them. They don't say like, why can't you just deal with me? Or, you know, she says, what would you like my sergeant to do? I mean, that's really just another police officer. But uh, C. Brooks continues to dial 911. This is 911 call two. I'm calling because um, I've been racing at uh, Mill Street. Sorry, the, oh, the police are there. Well, I, I don't believe them. They, you asked for them to come. I'm, Those I'm, are the police. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about killing myself now. So send more. Send the big. I want one. Where's your emergency? What? Okay, so that's that so a that, short call. Uh, it was very short. So you'll see that uh, he says, I don't believe that's the police. The dispatcher verifies that they're there. Uh, for most people, like when you when you independently call the police yourself, you know you're reaching the police station. The person who answers verified that there's two police officers there, and that wasn't enough for him. And he suddenly changes the situation drastically by saying, "Well, I'm thinking about killing myself." And I don't know if you guys saw that coming, but it seemed like a drastic turn to me. And I, you don't want to downplay those things because of the severity and the seriousness of it. But a lot of times 911 dispatchers will be on the phone with someone and all of a sudden a piece of information like that suddenly gets uttered or said because the person saying it knows that it will increase police response. They'll say, oh, he has got a gun in his hand. He's got a knife in his hand or I want to kill myself. These things, they know, escalate calls. In fact, I've taken some before where people will tell me that someone has a knife in hand. And then when I tell them the police are right outside, they'll say, oh, the they, they put the knife down and they're they're totally calm. But they know that the 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 knife will make the police respond with lights and sirens. Drew, your thoughts. Yeah. Um, like weapons in general, but you know, the, the thing is when somebody says on the phone or in person, when somebody says, uh, okay, well now I'm thinking of killing myself. Yeah. Sometimes it's a tactic to get more attention or sometimes it's a, get, a, a tactic to get uh, more police presence or, or whatever the reason uh, but there's, there's no reason to disbelieve them. If somebody tells you they're going to kill, uh, kill themselves, you just, you kind of have to. Yeah, you uh, you would you be until... you would be wrong to disregard that. And uh, yeah. one more thing, as we continue, that we're about to show or play nine one one call number three for you. Uh, everything that that happens in the course of this, I just want to the re part of the reason why we're playing all of these is to remind you that whatever's going on with Mister Seabrooks today, whether he's having a mental health crisis or he's having uh, problems with drugs or anything else that might be going on with him, 
just want to remind you that uh, the police were invited to the situation, that they were not here until Mr. Seabrooks himself called them. And it doesn't mean that the police have license to do what they want after that, but he did play place multiple 911 calls asking for police officers to arrive and now more police officers. And their sergeants. And their sergeants. I get a baby to uh, Street. Mill Street. Yeah, uh, apartment. Uh, sir, we have multiple police officers at Mill Street. Are you not speaking to any of the officers that are there? Yeah, but um, I want to speak to the sergeant. Okay, a, a sergeant is on the way, so you speak to the sergeant, sir. No one right. is trying to hurt you. You have multiple police officers that are that are there already. All right, hold on. You know, I just want to point out that, I mean, everybody I've heard so far has shown, uh, you know, a great degree of empathy. It's easy to get frustrated when people are calling 911 over and over and over for the same thing. Uh, you know, there have been times where we've been on a traffic stop with somebody and they've, they've called 911 over and over, you know, uh, because they disagree with what's going on in the car behind them, you know, which is us, you know, the police. So I don't know why they're calling 911. It's not to complain, but. Uh, it's very easy to get frustrated when this is happening. Uh, they're they're taking an empathetic tone in the whole thing, and they're telling telling him, "Hey, look, everybody's there. The sergeant's on the way. Just you know, just talk to the people that that are there. You know, it should be a reassurance. Like, trust us. Like, you want the cops there. Those are the cops. You keep calling back asking for more cops, but we're telling you the ones that we sent you are are good. They're they're already there." Well, one thing you're hearing is frustration, but it's also confusion because at one point she says you don't see any police officers. You have to remember there's a disconnect in geography and placement and time for a 911 dispatcher. Sometimes we can send people to places and sometimes they go to the wrong place. Sometimes addresses are bad. Sometimes people get lost, misdirected. Sometimes things are just confusing. So if someone calls 911 and you send them police and the police go 1097 or on scene and they're there for some amount of time, and you're, and you're taking calls from the person, the reporting party over and over again, you know that it seems like contact has not been made between your reporting party and police. Now, 911 dispatchers will typically feel like an incident is more or less stabilized once a police officer or another first responder has made contact with the reporting party. It's very unusual to continue to take calls from a reporting party once you know a police officer's on scene. And it's making the 911 dispatcher believe that there's some sort of disconnect in the physical arrival of those police officers and perhaps they're somewhere else. The uh, I think the body worn cam will kind of solve some of that mystery as well. I mean, you know, spoiler alert: the uh, the the guy that keeps calling nine one one is behind a closed door, and and they're trying to negotiate with him in in a locked room, a closed door. So, um, just remember, this, this is what we keep saying, you know, every week, and I think it's important to point out the the. The 911 emergency call taker does not know what's going on at that scene. Nobody from nobody is live streaming what what the officers are seeing. No cops are calling up there saying, "Hey, we got him holed up in the hotel in the in the bathroom." Uh, so she's she's the, the disconnect comes sometimes from natural things like this. Like you do not see police officers there. The answer to that question is no, because I got the door shut. But he's not going to offer that. You ready? Go on. This is officer number one's body cam. The sergeant arrives and attempts to convince the suspect that she is a sergeant with the Patterson PD, and the suspect refuses to come out. 
If you want to ajar the door a little bit, with all due respect, I'll step back and you can take a look at me. You want to do it that way? Possible weapon. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Okay, important point. Um, so whoever is wearing this body camera, you can see it's a very narrow hallway. They can see into the kitchen off to their right. They could see down the hallway off to their left where there is an officer in, in between the officer and the door where the suspect is, is a sergeant who's very calmly and like in a big sister or motherly fashion trying to coax this guy out of there. And the officer just casually says, Sarge, weapon, meaning, hey, this guy's armed. And she goes, yeah, yeah. And she keeps going, meaning I got it. I, I, he I heard you. Or I, I like I know I understand, and, and it, it, just for those listening, she's standing directly in front of the door that he is kind of hiding behind. So that is something to remember as, as you watch the rest of this. Thinking about the people in that narrow corridor, there are two bedrooms behind them, and the bathrooms in front of them. Uh, that it's close quarters combat if combat has to happen in this hallway and you'll see many people going down in front of that door and finding out how the situation ends i want you to remember all the people who eventually stand in front of that door because in some sense they're all in danger i want to say i'm very impressed by this sergeant who shows up takes command of the situation and the way that she talks to him at first i thought she had some negotiations background and perhaps she does but she's just a very good sergeant uh, multiple times she calls him honey and sweetie and things like this she's trying to build a bond with the guy to understand that uh, she's a police officer there she's there to help what seabrooks asks for is some rather bizarre things identification she wants a badge or a patch slid under the door and of course the sergeant's not able to do that drew go ahead uh just to, to paint another picture the the apartment is not that big and so the the corridor we're looking at um, if John and I were standing in the doorway, or I'm sorry, if John and I were standing in the, the corridor, the, we wouldn't fit shoulder to shoulder, especially with that glorious beard he has. Here you, babe. Say it again. No, I'm a cop, honey. I've been doing this for 20 years. Born and raised in Patterson. I still live here. But I'm not here, listen, I'm not here to assume or to judge you, okay? You don't know me. I don't know you. I'm trying to have you understand that we're here for for your well-being, to make sure that you're okay. That's it. Okay? Your family and your loved ones are out here, and they're worried about you. They're concerned. You said you wanted a sergeant. You got one. It's, uh, it's always a good uh, kind of tactic, and John, you could speak to this more, to remind them that they have family here, to remind them that we're here to help them and not hurt them and just, you know, present that calm demeanor, uh, but but especially to kind of involve the family like you have something more to live for. Your mic is muted. What they typically will call that for a hostage negotiation standpoint is hooks and triggers. Um, sometimes it's hard to know if talking about family is going to be a hook or a trigger because in a suicidal situation, and perhaps we need to think of this one as, as one because he did make that threat. We don't know if family troubles are the reason for someone's uh, suicidal ideation or if they're the thing that would give them hope in that situation. Uh, it's presumed throughout the rest of the call that uh, family is important to Mr. Seabrook. Certainly his mother and other family members are there acting in caring ways. And Seabrooks himself has other family members that are not present who are very important to him. Go ahead, Drew. Uh, hooks and triggers, by the way, sounds like a house of ill repute. 911, where's your emergency? Uh, uh, 
So this is 911 call number four. He continues to call 911, even with this sergeant on the other side of the door trying to convince him. Sir, Mill Street, you, you're... Well, I'll be a standoff in this motherfucker because it's crazy around here. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Sir, but what do you want me to do on a phone line when officers are actually there? Speak to them, please. There's no officers here. I, I said I want an officer. I need a sergeant. Okay, and the sergeant is there, sir. How are you? How are you not seeing anybody? I have one, two, three, four, four officers that are out there with even. Because I'm not coming out. Yeah, I'm going to be on the news. So fuck. Sir, hold on one second, okay? Hold on, okay? Give me one second. I'm going to talk to the officers for you. Hold on. Do not hang up. Give me a second, okay? So he, he's he's saying things like, I'm going to be on the news, and, and you know, it, it's, it's going downhill. The negotiations, whatever they're trying, is not working. Uh, it's not like they need to escalate from a force standpoint, but they need to kind of whatever tricks up their sleeve they have, they need to kind of start throwing them down. I just want to remind the listeners that the news reported that he had been barricaded in his apartment for hours and only moments after the police arrived and uh, gained entry to the apartment, did they shoot Mr. Najee Seabrooks. And it was implied that very little was done to talk to him or figure out what was going on with him. And we can even see so far that two police officers arrived. Both of them tried to talk to him. Both officers tried to switch off to see if he could build a rapport with either one. The sergeant arrived. So far, no rapport. He's still continuing to call 911 because he's still not getting what he wants. And a tip of the hat to my partner, Jonathan, who uh, who whittled down probably about four hours worth of footage and 911 calls into this presentation that you're seeing now. I mean, we're doing this for brevity's sake and for um, the relevance because these negotiations – sometimes take forever and ever and ever. Um, and it, it requires a lot of patience, but obviously we don't have the time to just sit there and watch the whole thing. So, uh, this by the way, is going to be officer number one's body cam. Again, the suspect still doesn't believe the police. There's an ambulance that arrives on scene. Often they're in a safer place. Like you'll see, I think they, the rescue crew is kind of standing in the kitchen or hanging in the kitchen. Sometimes we will use that rescue crew, uh, and I don't know how it is in New Jersey. It may be that they're dual certified as law enforcement and uh, rescue, but uh, sometimes we'll use them to do the talking. I mean, if they can, if they know that um, there's a medical issue going on or a mental health issue where they need to get them to the hospital, and they can convince them that they're not in trouble, that you know they have no arrest powers, they're just there to help them. Sometimes that's uh, that works in your favor. Hi. Go ahead. Najee. My name is Firefighter Broadfield. I'm with the Patterson Fire Department. I'm the EMT here. I'm here to help. Want to go to the hospital to go get help? Huh? I'm here to help to take you to the hospital to go get help to go talk to someone. I don't want to go to the hospital. I need a water and a charger. Najee, listen. Najee, you want water? You want a charger? You got to give us something back. Okay, it's a give and take, Najir. You can't just keep asking for stuff. You said you wanted to kill yourself, we're here to help you. Okay, how do you want to go about hurting yourself? Are you under taking medication? What are we doing? You got a gun and two knives. Okay, so we have quite a few critical things going on there. He's uh, 
he's uh, started making demands. You know, he said that he wanted a bottle of water and he wants other things. Uh, this is a classic a barricaded subject, almost hostage type situations. You have to think of it as a hostage situation and that he's threatened to harm himself. He's essentially taken himself hostage. And that's why we would call this a hostage negotiation, a barricaded subject. It's a crisis event that a negotiator would respond to. But it's uh, the sergeant's absolutely correct. She says, you know, this is a give and take situation. You can't just keep making demands of us. Now, why would we give in to certain demands? Uh, to build patterns of cooperative behavior so that we show that we're committed to a solution, that we're going to be reasonable, that we're not going to go in there and just kick some ass and use force to get our way. Certainly giving someone a bottle of water out of their own refrigerator in their apartment is something we can do. There's also certain tactical advantages to that. If we, he opens the door and from a safe distance, we can see inside. Perhaps we can verify the weapons. We can see if he's injured. We could see if he's in there alone and various other things like that. But uh, she's right to say that there's got to be some give and take. You can't just endlessly give in to those demands and not expect anything back. So she's right to open that dialogue and explain that right away. Drew? Uh, I see a great comment in here. Uh, well, I see a couple of great comments in here. First of all, uh, somebody is, is saying, he is he choosing not to believe this or is this a stall tactic or something to that, that effect? And um, this is a, he, he's obviously delusional. He's, he's not believing that the police are who they are. Um, and is it a stall tactic? Who knows? I mean, he's in there with knives and he says a gun. Uh, if he wanted to kill himself, he could have, easily done that by now um but they're just they're doing everything they can they're throwing the the uh you know every every card in the deck at him to try to uh to try to coax him out to get him to some help and um you know it becomes a frustrating process there's a there was another great uh question here uh he said he had a gun so keep the door closed and the knives aren't a threat but the gun doesn't care about doors which is a great point but if he can't see you um, you know, you, you've got a little bit of an advantage, at least. I, I definitely see your point, though, that that that, that bullet will penetrate a, a door very easily. And you don't know what you're shooting into when you, you know, if you're going to try to return fire. We've seen uh, officers who were unsuccessful with that. So this is kind of gut-wrenching. This is another body cam uh, angle. And the police asked the suspect's mother to ask him to come out of the room. He doesn't believe anybody that's there. So they finally say, you know, the mother was up, what we'll call upstairs. The whole family was upstairs. Uh, obviously, they know he's in some kind of mental health crisis or maybe a drug situation. We don't know. And um, so the mother comes down and she begs and pleads with her baby to come out. 20 mil. 20 mil, Sarge. That G! Why are you doing this to me? Please open the door. Najee, I'm not doing that to you. Please, this is your mother. Najee, come on, Najee, please. You can't make me upset. What money, Najee? What are you talking about? I can't believe you're doing this. Open the door. The, uh, I'd just like to point out, tactically speaking, they are putting her right in between that door. Uh, the, the only thing, you know, the, I guess they have great confidence that he's not going to hurt his own mother. Um, but she is begging and pleading outside that door. And even he, he's saying things to her that even she doesn't understand, such as 
you know, he's making statements about money or where's the money or somebody took the money. And she, she's like, what money? What are you talking about? Like, nobody knows what you're talking about. Um, so, I listened. I listened to her for three minutes. I wanted to leave the room that I was in. She she's absolutely gut wrenched over what is going on with him. She's extremely worried about him. Uh, as we find out later, this is a very dangerous situation, and this is something that has uh, kind of been a school of thought in hostage negotiations, crisis negotiations for years. Is what is the safe way? What is the best way to use third party intermediaries? And should you, you know, what, suppose they had put the mother down in front of her and, and the mother had come at him at a place of attack and guilt, saying, this is all your fault. We're all embarrassed by you. Look at what's going on here. You have the police in our home. And suppose that had agitated. You never know how people are going to respond to family. And a lot of times with third party intermediaries, what we will try to do is get a recorded message. I've had to do that before with a barricaded subject who had a firearm uh, up to his forehead where I had to get a message in the comm center from his wife telling him that the situation was going to be okay and that he should comply with officers. And that was a bit of a technological feat to get her to say that on a recorded line in the comm center and get that to an officer's cell phone where he could then play it for him. But I was able to do that and happy that we were able to uh, solve that situation. So the use of third party intermediaries, people have different thoughts about it, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. Uh, I, for, for many years, I always thought it was a bad idea because suppose this, Suppose she goes down there and she does all of these things. Najee, come out of here, please. I'm your mother. And he says, I love you, mama. Goodbye. Drew. Yeah. I mean, she's going to, that's the worst case scenario. Well, it's not even the worst case scenario uh, for the officers because, you know, he could come out that door and charge at her. And, and now you've got a whole different situation on your hands. For her, though, emotionally, uh, you know, mentally or, or, I don't know that you ever get closure uh, when you're begging and pleading with somebody who's in this mental health crisis that you know, and that you know isn't in your right mind. And, she, and you know, she's upset and, uh, you know, she's probably at a 10 on a scale of 10 because she also knows what's going on here. He's not listening to reason. He's not listening to his mama. And he has knives in there, and there are guys on guys and girls on the other side of the door with a bunch of guns. And um, she probably understands the gravity uh, and and the potential outcome here. So the sergeant decides to disengage contact with the suspect. What they decide to do from there, and uh, this is often a tactic we use is to wait for the uh, crisis negotiator just to just kind of stabilize the scene uh keep them talking the best you can but wait for negotiators to respond and probably the emergency response team which is sometimes known as the SWAT team depending on where you are uh, but you're gonna have to hold your hold what you got hold your positions until you're relieved at that point but you can it's it's good to try to at least keep the communication going so at least you know uh, you know, that there's some stability in there and that they're not bleeding out on the floor or, or, or something to that effect. Uh, and just, you know, every once in a while, sh shout out a challenge question or see if they'll see if they've come down from their psychosis or whatever. John? Uh, they're going to try another tactic here as more personnel arrive on scene. Uh, something like I said, alluded to earlier with the first two police officers that are, initiate contact is if you can't build a rapport with one person, you 
you put your ego aside and say, well, this isn't, this isn't working for me. I don't have the tools or the ability to connect with this person. Let's get somebody else in here. And you're about to see yet another sergeant come and approach the door and talk to him. I can also tell you from a st the standpoint of somebody who I'm glad you mentioned that about the ego, because, you know, I, I would pride myself on the interviews I did. I would try to connect with people on the human level. I, I've, you know, I've made no secret about my own mental health issues and, um, or, or, you know, my battles with suicide. So sometimes it made me better prepared to have these conversations with people. Uh, the fact that I'm still, you know, roaming the earth is, is, uh, is, a, you know, could be used as a sign to them that, you know, there, there could be brighter days ahead. And, um, you know, I, I was pretty successful at talking to people. I did a good job at talking to people. And uh, for some reason, I just saw the humanity in a lot of people and, and they were able to, to break through the uniform and see the humanity in me. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've been through quite a few of these where I'm able to successfully talk to somebody i've also been through a few where it's just not going anywhere and and it's it is so emotionally draining and frustrating when you're trying to reason with somebody who is unreasonable because of a, a psychosis or because of drugs or uh and and you know just like the mom i alluded to a minute ago just like the mom you just you kind of like man I, <laughs> I, I don't I don't know where her, his or her head is right now, but I know that this is this is bad. Uh, it's not it's not going to end well for somebody. It's funny you mentioned breaking through the uniform because observer bias, uniforms, badges, and titles, they all certainly do have an effect on a suspect or any person in crisis. Normally, when you will make first contact with the subject, usually by phone, voice, or whatever it is you're doing, you'll introduce yourself without your title. And certainly with some official dumb, you'll say your department. So I would say, you know, I'm John and I'm I'm with the such and such department. I'm, I'm here to help. Can you tell me what's going on? Can you tell me how we got here? Is anybody hurt? You know, you would typically start with questions like that. Uh, throwing out I'm I'm officer so and so. It's almost like you're you're uh, doing sort of a power wedge of your authority over them or trying to claim some power in this situation. Make no mistake, the person in charge of this situation right now when it comes to the safety of Mr. Seabrooks is Mr. Seabrooks himself. Also, the situation I must point out is incredibly similar to what correctional officers face every day. Uh, correctional officers have to deal with inmates who will barricade themselves inside their cells. They'll take mattresses and other things, cover up cameras, cover up cell fronts, and we have to be responsible for their safety and negotiate with them sometimes at cell front just like this. Uh, inmates can get a hold of weapons, so simply opening the door is not always an option. Depending on their custody status, opening a door is not only an option. Uh, not having a full team there to respond to inmate violence, especially if there's two inside the cell, is often a problem. So the idea of negotiating it face to face, you know, through a door is something that correctional officers have to do every day. Drew. Great uh, comment here. Um, if I were a mom, I'm wondering if if they had not allowed her to try uh, how much she would be haunted by it. Uh, I can tell you that this is a pretty rare circumstance here. Uh, John just alluded to the fact that, you know, sometimes they'll get a recording of somebody. It's, it's, it's kind of rare that we uh, bring a family member in that close. So uh, yeah, I, I do understand that position. I understand uh, where you're coming from. It's uh, it's definitely not frequently done though, it's, because it's, of the danger involved. 
It's critical to mention, though, because some of the first reports that I read about this was, you know, that Mr. Seabrooks works for this nonviolence coalition and that certain of his colleagues he had texted and they were outside and they were ready to come up and defuse the situation. He's saying, you know, I want to talk to my people. I want to talk to my friends. And their complaint was is that the police did not allow them to respond. So the situation is being shaped as though mental health professionals were ready, were there and ready to respond and the police denied them access. When we find out the situation is violent and dangerous later, you have to see that the police are granting extra leverage for people, for anyone that can reach him, particularly his mother and other people, as you'll see in this video. So the claim that only police officers were allowing influential people to come and talk to Seabrooks was absolutely not true. True. This is the, the this is a part of the reimagining police or defunding police where uh, they want social workers or they want psych, uh, mental health counselors or whatever to travel with police officers. But I, I can tell you just, you know, I, I think there's even uh, something they've run into in California right now. Um, if there's somebody on the other side of the door with a knife or a gun, the, the mental health counselor is not, <laughs> they're generally not the one that's in between. You know what I mean? They're not the, they're not the one that's proximal to the, the suspect. Or, or, or the person having the crisis, they're not necessarily suspects. But um, so you can th you can throw all the mental health resources in the world at at Najee right now, or you can, but he's still at the end of the day a human being who has strength and knives, and he says he has a gun, and you can't just stick a social worker, or you can't just stick a psycho a a, a mental health professional in. It, just like the mom, you, you kind of can't just shove them right to the front of the line. Uh, you have to hold a protective barrier for them. Let's go, Andrew. It, yeah. The suspect doesn't trust the Patterson PD. The officers try to get the subject to call his grandfather. Hey, hey, his grandfather happens to be a retired uh, police officer. Good. Hi, my name is Sergeant Serrano, Patterson Police. I um. I just want you to let you know you're not in trouble, not whatsoever, okay? We have a whole bunch of people here just trying to get you some help or for you to talk to someone. I heard you calling someone over. We will not be able to let that person in unless you come out and go to the ambulance. If you want that person to go with you to the hospital, we could see if we could arrange that or not for you. Right now, the whole situation is, procedures is, if, if from this situation, you're not wanting to come out, you're inside with a couple of knives. You stated some things, I guess, that made some people feel uncomfortable as you wanted to hurt yourself. Um, because of that, we you have to go to the hospital. Um, at this point, you know, we just all here trying to help you. So if you could tell me what's the best way to help you, that will actually, you know, that help us figuring out a way for you to actually come out and get some help from someone. Then if you took something, I'm not sure if that's true or not. If you took something, that's okay too. You're not in trouble because if you took something, okay? At this point, we don't care of whatever you used. If it was a, if it's making you feel certain type of ways, that's perfectly fine. I don't care if you even have it on you right now. Right now, all we try to do is get you to the hospital and get some help. And as long as you just come out and nothing occurs after, you're good. You're not under arrest or nothing like that. We'll just get you to the hospital just to talk to someone over there, and your mentor could possibly go there as well with you. Now, I, I get it. It's frustrating. You don't want anybody here in your house. You probably just wanted to 
chill out and talk to your mentor or go for a walk or something like that. Unfortunately, we're at this process right now. What's up? That's fine. So, so emergency response it. team has arrived. Uh, part of the reason the way I edited it the way I did is because you, it's very difficult to hear Mr. Seabrooks as he's answering uh, the sergeant. Most of the time, he's not verbal at all. And the sergeant has to kind of continue with the stream of thought. And he's almost guessing, you know, are you worried about if I go in there and we're going to find drugs on you? Because at this point, we don't care about that. We only care about your well-being. We care about getting you to the hospital. He's basically telling him, like, to defuse the situation and to make sure that you're safe, we're just going to forego the criminal stuff of whatever could be going on in there in terms of uh, narcotics, drugs, and things like that. So here again, we have we have the police. We have we have had now four police officers, a mother, and an EMT fireman at this this doorfront saying, "Hey, why don't you come out and talk to us?" He's still refusing to do that, uh, refusing to cooperate. We're still not really exactly sure what his his mental state is. Uh, but we're already, by the time when that sergeant first started speaking with him, we had already had police officers on scene for 27 minutes. And now the emergency response team has arrived. Drew, go ahead. Incidentally, in some states, to include here in Florida, there are laws that prevent you from charging somebody criminally when they call about an overdose. So, you know, in a situation like Najee's there, I, I'm pretty sure it's probably the same in New Jersey. I don't know factually, but. Um, the, the, the sergeant is just kind of saying, look, we don't care about the dope and, and nobody believes the cops anyway, but it's true. Uh, we don't care about the dope. We just want you to come out. That's it. We don't want you to cut yourself. We don't want you to cut anybody else or hurt anybody else. We just, we, you know, we're just trying to help you here. So by the way, that's his, uh, beanbag. Okay. So that's. Hey Najim, look. I, I, the last thing I want to do is go in there forcefully. But that, but the whole problem is we don't want you to hurt yourself. We're concerned that we're, we don't want to hurt you. We're not going to hurt you. Exactly. That's why we want you to just come out and come talk to the ambulance. That would make sense, uh, exactly. We just want you to come out so and just go to. Like we're so you're we're not. No one said that at all. You understand me? No. Money is that what happened? This has nothing. He, he keeps saying money is that important. Money is that important. Nothing to do with money. The, the, there's just no reasoning with him. He he's just like in this state. He's stuck. I'm not even sure where that comes from. To be honest. It's heartbreaking for real. At this point, you just have to come out and come to the hospital with you. Yeah, you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So just open the door, shows you with your hands up, and that's it. We'll we'll walk you to the to the ambulance. Once you get to the ambulance safe, we'll leave you alone. Once you get to the hospital safe, I mean. And then we could arrange your mentor to go to the hospital as well. You washing your face, Najin? No, I'm not washing my face. Um, because I heard the water. I just want you to take deep breaths. Careful, police dispatch for calling. Okay. So, um, as we continue on the the journey here, he starts calling neighboring police departments. 
he calls uh, the police department in Fairfield, New Jersey, and Ogden, New Jersey, and he tells them that the Patterson PD is holding him captive. Patterson, uh, New Jersey. Okay. Um, it's a lot of people trying to hurt me right now, so I'm calling y'all to so y'all could come here because Patterson police intercepting every call I make out. So I'm trying to find other cities to reach out to. I'm at, um. You're in Patterson, sir. Yes, I'm at. Mill Street, Patterson, New Jersey. And what's, what going, doing what's is, going on there? They they got me trapped in a bathroom, right? And they're trying to kill me. Alert everybody. What, uh, what, so I'm who is the person that you, you're, that is holding you there? Uh, Patterson cops. They keep me Patterson out. police are have you in the bathroom? Yes, but you got to have you up. My phone on 3%. Did you hear what he said? They said the police are, are killing my phone. So the right. situation has transformed from the initial 911 call. Please send two police officers over to my house. I'm being threatened to now that he, he believes that the Patterson Police Department are real. But now they are, they are keeping him hostage there. Um, that sergeant who was talking to him, you'll hear him kind of fumble over his words. Well, you know, you're kind of going off the cuff when you're negotiating and it can be very difficult because number one, you don't want to make any promises that you can't deliver on. So when he says, you know, we're going to leave you alone when you get to the ambulance, that's obviously not true. So he quickly corrects himself. We'll leave you alone when you get to the hospital. And then he says, and then your mentor can be there. And he says, I don't know what the policies are from the hospital in terms of having your mentor there. So he, he kind of tries to leave a little bit of headroom in there so that he's not overcommitting and not underdelivering on these promises. And, you know, at one point he hears the water running, like maybe he's washing up and getting ready to go. Like to me, that might be a sign that he's ready to leave. And so he says, are you, are you washing your face? And this just totally sets Seabrooks off. He goes, no, I'm not washing my face. And Sergeant kind of like, I just want you to take deep breaths. He realizes that uh, by asking that, somehow he's uh, escalating the situation. So he's immediately trying to de-escalate again by going with the deep breaths. Drew. Uh, those are great points. I can't top them. Let's continue. So uh, <laughs> the uh, I hit play, but it's not doing anything. The officers attempt to convince the subject to come out by talking to him about his family. Because I know you really care about your daughter, right? John, uh, can you explain why he used the daughter's name? Uh, it, it makes the more real rather than just saying your daughter, your daughter, your daughter. He's, he's again, the same way that a, a negotiator or a police officer would talk to him by calling him Naji or that the first sergeant called him Naj, you know, kind of giving him sort of a nickname. It humanizes and it makes him want, he wants Naji to think about his daughter. His daughter's out of state in California. It's really hard to tell what they're talking about other than to say uh, that something that Naji might be upset about is that he's, uh, he's separated physically from his daughter. He's, she's on the other side of the country. She's four years old and they want to give him something positive to focus on. Uh, unlike a mother or someone else there, it's very hard to have hard feelings about your four-year-old daughter. There could be things surrounding that situation, perhaps hopelessness about a reunion. But again, we're going with the idea, uh, the theme here of family, that uh, Naji is a guy that works in a nonviolent uh, political action committee. Uh, he's uh, about gun control. Uh, he's here with multiple family members. He seems to have respect for his mom. It's kind of a, a good theme to go with. A lot of time negotiators will try to build a theme and try to figure out uh, what he's about 
uh, what kinds of things are, are likely to, to de-escalate him. And they're trying to appeal to his, his uh, sense of uh, paternal protectiveness over his daughter or giving him uh, something to make future plans about rather than thinking like his life has to end here today, locked in the bathroom with the Patterson PD, they can start making plans for the future. Well, when we get out of here, you know, we can get you to the hospital and we can start making plans to possibly, uh, or, you know, maybe we can have your daughter fly out here or you can go there. And once you have them start thinking more about the future, it helps take some of the immediacy or the direness out of the situation once they're able to form those long-term plans. Drew? Yeah. If somebody, if somebody mentions the name of, of somebody close and personal to me, their image pops into my head. So I think that's always probably best too, to kind of uh, throw the, the track off to the point where you're actually connecting with something in, in your mind. What happened with She went to California, right? What happened with that? That's got to be hard. That sucks. How old is your daughter? Three. Oh, man, that's horrible. You want to tell me a little bit about what happened? If you won't do it for me, will you do it for... Because you know that four-year-old daughter loves you. And you know she's missing you. That's a big appeal right there. Say, you know, if you won't do it for me because you don't have respect for the police, you don't have respect for me. You don't know me in this situation. And there's no reason why anything that I'm saying to you should matter. Does your daughter matter? Will you come out for her? Will you come out so that you can make plans to see her? That's a huge appeal. And I'm not sure if that's uh, one of the emergency response team guys talking to her. It certainly looks like it's uh, one of those guys that is able to talk. Perhaps they have an integrated team of negotiators and, and uh operators but a huge appeal there and ineffective drew uh let's continue on this is uh the police allow the suspect's uncle to approach the apartment so the suspect will come out and talk to him that's uh, another tactic wait for the other guy to get his phone but in the meantime i got ID. He's right out in the hallway. Now, I know you want to verify that it's him. What's that? That's exactly what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to have one of these guys slide the ID under the door. All right. I'm going to slide it right under right now, all right? The suspect refuses to believe that his uncle uh, has arrived. At the scene, despite being given his ID card, and that was the purpose of uh, trying to slide the ID card under the uh, under the door, the uncle, who is a former police officer, is allowed to approach the suspect in the bathroom and talk. We're now talking about one hour and 41 minutes of contact time between the police and Mr. Seabrooks inside the door again to totally lay waste to the news narrative. And perhaps it was only one station reported this, but the police went in there and without much thought or consideration or empathy, shot Mr. Seabrooks, we can see we're only an hour and 41 minutes in. We're not giving up. We're trying new tactics. We're trying to find a way to get that door open so that Mr. Seabrooks can come out peaceably.
Najee, I got shit here now, okay? He's going to start talking to you. Shoot, we'll lose audio. John, are you Guy, hearing that? you good? Yeah. Okay. Najee, you good? Huh? I need you to come on out. Everybody's upstairs wants to see you. They all came here because they're in love with you. If, if you if you go upstairs, you come on out, go upstairs, they'll give you an opportunity to talk to your mom and everybody you need to. All right? How's that sound? Good? All right, put the knives down and listen to these officers and come on out, all right? I'll walk you out, all right? I'll stay with you through the whole process. Najib, all right, put them down and come on out. Everybody's here because we care about you. So uh, the suspect has uh, promised to come out. This is usually a sign that the negotiation is effective. But the suspect, uh, but the but Najee breaks his word in this uh, in this instance. We'll see in a second. And they call him out on it too, as as you'll see here. That they want to know why he's going back on his word. Najee, come on, man. Two minutes is way up, man. You told me two minutes. You promised. You promised us. What do you want me to tell your mom? She's upstairs all upset. And I, I ain't got nothing I can tell her. The suspect refuses to cooperate, and the ERT has uh, fulfilled numerous uh, demands for, like, water. They have agreed to allow him to talk to his mother, his mentor, and his colleagues who are outside trying to talk to him. So they were given the opportunity to talk to him, John. Yeah, they, they're telling him, like, listen, all you have to do is just come on outside. Your, your friends and your people are out there. We'll let you talk to them before you get in the ambulance. Uh, his mentor, I believe, if I'm not conflating people, was his uncle who came in. And that was uh, the last person spoke. He's also a former police officer, just like Najee's grandfather is. So interesting here that family is a theme that you're going with. Uh, you have two family members who are former police officers. Obviously, you know, at this point, the SWAT team is there and they're allowing his uncle as a former police officer to talk to him. The uncle is obviously giving him very sound uh, advice for what we would not call a surrender to the police, but which is in effect a surrender. And uh, again, you know, multiple people are being allowed to talk to him. He's being being given assurances of uh, fair and kind treatment. That the things that are concerning him that will be addressed. And uh, we're now at two hours and 15 minutes of contact with the suspect, and he still has uh, given us nothing. Drew. Onward. It'll start playing in a second. This is body cam from officer number three now. Najee. Come on, man. Please. You gotta, you're the one that can end this, kid. Come on. We need you to come out and talk to your mom. What am I going to tell your mom? I can't. I told you that. I got your uncle right here. That's the best I could do right now. I can't bring your mom down here. I'm telling you the truth. But as soon as you come out, your mom will be the first person I bring you to talk to. So, negotiate. The weapon that he has, he's now going to turn on himself. Uh, this is a sign that uh, he's has a full break with reality. Um, luckily, we don't see a whole lot of these acts of self-harm. 
and I've condensed a lot of it down. But at one point, these officers are watching him. Uh, he'll open the door and uh, he'll take the knife to his, his body right in front of them. Again, this is something correctional officers have to see quite a bit. You think that inmates don't get a hold of sharp objects. They very frequently do. And it can be very, very, very disturbing to see someone looking straight at you and daring you to stop them. They have a weapon in their hand and they're harming themselves. Drew, have you ever been in a situation like that? Sure. Um, but I was going to ask the question of you and Micah, uh, you know, how long would this negotiation go on if this were in the, in the wall, inside the walls of, uh, of a prison, say? I mean, well, would you... it's the thing is that the situation is different inside a prison. Um, effectually, you have to weigh out a lot of things. You know, you can use force. Uh, the, your use of force doctrine is a lot more uh, liberal or loose inside the prison. Um, but what I always thought of before I would do a cell entry was, is I would consider who I was dealing with, the propensity for violence, um, other things. Uh, one time we had an inmate... Uh, who was well-known and well-documented that he could not feel pain. I'm not sure what the reason for that was, but everyone knew that no matter what happened to his body physically, he did not register pain. The decision oh. was made when we made a cell entry on him that we would not deploy OC spray because it would not have any effect on him. However, it would affect the officers going inside. So usually my primary concern before we would do a cell entry was how long have we been negotiating and uh, how serious is the situation? Are we able to see him at all? Is he talking to us? Are negotiations progressing? But most of all, whether or not my officers would get hurt. I did uh, order a cell entry on one occasion in which uh, two of my officers were hurt, and it was not fun for me uh, to have officers hurt on my watch. I did not enjoy that. So for the benefit of those who don't see the comments here, Micah said that uh, if they're self-harming, they have to react where he works. They have to react immediately despite any... Uh, risk involved and just like any good leader he says that he goes first that was a, a test question Micah when I got hired uh, they actually showed me a video I'm not sure if it was real or not it was probably not but they showed a, an inmate inside a cell uh, cutting his arm with some sharp object and they say what will you do and one of the options was do you call the door open from the control room and intervene in that situation or do you call for backup for our situation and I believe the correct choice is to wait for backup I don't want that inmate to come to harm but I'm also not going to put myself at risk or other, or or one other officer. If I can, I'm going to get as much help there as soon as possible. Um, unfortunately, I have seen inmates very gravely injured because we were not able to get that help to them. But, you know, if I become a casualty in that situation, if he's able to do greater harm to me than he is to himself, all of a sudden we have two people injured. And then right. the next person to respond has to deal with that, Drew. Yeah, we, we don't want to uh, we don't want to create more victims is the is the thing. So anyway, we, you, you've got to balance that decision, you know, that that tipping point. But you definitely don't want to create more victims. So you might have to just go in or you might have to wait for somebody before you go in. So he's harming himself with a knife. We are for sure uh, positive that he does have a weapon inside. Nadia, are you trying to harm yourself? I'm worried about you. He continues to self-harm. He displays more bizarre behavior, such as uh, turning on the water in the shower. Don't forget he's in the bathroom. Yeah, this, there, there would be no reason for that, obviously. Two hours and 56 minutes at this point. We've had contact between the suspects. Come on, Najee. Uh, he got three knives. He got three knives in hand. Najee, I got a pocket in here. I got a hoodie on. You dummy. Yeah, on, I got three knives. 
He holding on to three knives. He's bleeding from the left hand. Alright, disregard. He's bleeding from the right hand. Heavy bleeding from the right hand. Come on, we want to get you some medical attention. Let's go. We don't want to see anything happen to you. So I don't know if you can make this out if you're seeing it, uh, but definitely not if you're hearing it. Obviously, you can't see it, but. Uh, the officer whose body cam that we're seeing right now is holding his handgun. Uh, he is also kind of uh, shielded literally by uh, some type of shield. I don't know if it's ballistic. I don't know if it's rated for, you know, sh uh, sharp objects, but. They're also in, in full SWAT gear with helmets, visors on and all that too. Come on. Uh, the emergency response team deploys less lethal options as the suspect briefly opens the door. He's armed with knives and he's begun cutting his arms. We're at three hours and one minute into the negotiation here. It just gets getting, keeps getting worse. It's not a good sign once they've started uh, committing acts of violence against themselves and they have to start intervening. Uh, as Micah said that uh, you can't just do nothing. They have enough officers there. Uh, they they want to resist charging him. Uh, well, you got him, man. He's picking it up again. Make sure you say less than lethal. Mm -hmm. Hey, guys, less than lethal. Less than lethal. Fire up. Nah, less than lethal. One round, Captain. Oh, you get fired? One round, less than lethal. Uh, the suspect uh, assaults an officer by uh, throwing an unknown fluid on him. You'll hear the officer describe it in a second. That is a form of assault, everyone. I know that it may seem petty, but it is an assault. You also hear them talk about less lethal. Be ready, guys. They're Last committed day. to not harming him. He's praying. He's praying something. I don't know what it is. Uh, he just sprayed me with something in the face. I don't know what it is. All right. Bear in mind, uh, he's the, the description of minute or two, or two ago was he's bleeding heavily from his right hand. And now this this officer is getting sprayed in the face with an unknown object. It's you know or an unknown liquid. Um, it could be water from the shower. It could be blood. It could be a, a combination of the two. It, you know, it could be feces. It could be a, bu a, a bunch of stuff. Uh, but the officers are. Uh, just to kind of drive the point home, uh, standing, standing tough in the batter's box. They're just, they're just waiting it out. And, uh, this is, um, you know, this is the not so, uh, glamorous part of the job, but they're not, they're not giving up on this guy. The suspect had demanded to talk to the mayor and that request has been granted by the mayor, believe it or not, if the suspect peaceably exits the bathroom. You'll hear it's it in a, a second. It's a usual demand that they want to talk to the ultimate person in charge. However, no one in charge can negotiate as a matter of tactics because that person's a decision maker. That's why negotiators exist. That's why the chief yeah, doesn't negotiate. Yeah. Remember before you said you want to talk to the mayor, right? Yeah. Well, the lieutenant in internal affairs is telling me that he will get the mayor on the phone if you come out and you it's good that they're still leveling with them they're not they're not caving to every single demand and they are they, they are uh 
it's kind of, uh, in a sense, a tactic to snap them back into reality to tell them, no, we're not doing that. Just, you know, we, we've come this far. Let's let's keep going forward. But we're not we're not going to do that. John, anything? I I just want to say, you know, this is four and a half hours of footage. I for the simplicity of the podcast and to keep the story of this incident moving along, I had to cut out hours and hours and hours of them simply saying, Najee, Najee, talk to me. What's going on with you? And no response from him. They probably said his name 10,000 times. Again, I want to refute any media narrative that the police came in here with a lack of understanding or patience and simply gunned down someone specifically for their race. We have seen that that has been an utter non-factor in any of this. It has not come up at any point. Every single person, all of these people, firefighters, police officers, his own mother, his uncle, all of these people have approached the situation trying to resolve it. You cannot say that the racism of a police department, systemic or personal or otherwise, has any bearing in any of this. And the body cam footage and the voice audio of the officers and people that you're hearing verifies that. Drew. Great points. I mean, uh, this is not, this is a, a classic example of why I say uh, we are deteriorating in this country because nobody is necessarily safe anymore because there's police officer hesitancy. There's there is a a mass exodus exodus within law enforcement because social media and mainstream media come first and they get the story out how they want it painted. And that spreads like wildfire fire through the community. And to this day, they're still yelling uh, justice for Najee. You'll see in a minute here how, how it ends. But this was not what the news reported it to be. This, this was a hours, hours long patient, patient negotiation with care and compassion. It just turned very violent, very quick. And, um, you know, uh, and unfortunately, this young man lost his life in the process. It had nothing to do with him being black. It had nothing to do with any of the officers being white, Hispanic, black. It didn't matter. They were there trying to save him. Suspect's, suspect's behavior. Be Sorry, Go they've ahead. escalated to setting a fire, which is why they cannot retreat from the residence. Everyone there is now in danger because he will start a fire in the bathroom. And not only does he start it, but he makes it worse. Guys, knife on left hand. Uh, he started a fire. He started a fire. He's burning his shirt. He's burning his shirt. Still got a knife on his hand. He's starting a fire. Uh, I'm I'm kind of glad that you edited that out, but. <laughs> Um, this is, it's the same thing as, you know, that I tried to describe an active shooter situation. Like there is just so much, uh, environmental pollution happening while you're trying to concentrate and you're trying to do your best to get a safe full, a safe resolution for everybody there. And you got fire alarms going off. You got Najee yelling. You have your the, phone going off. You have the light in the hallway doesn't work. We've had a police officer shining a flashlight brightly on the ceiling in order to illuminate the corridor right. now for hours because there's no light bulb in the hallway. They tried right. the switch. You saw it earlier in the video. It's just one of a 10,000 things going on in an environment that's distracting and frankly agitating. When you're standing there, first of all, inside this apartment, this is in March, apartment's heated, but they're wearing this full tactical gear with their helmets on and their visors down, and they're standing there hour after hour 
I mean, even in comfortable clothes, could you stand there outside a bathroom door waiting for someone to come out comfortably for four hours? Now, I don't want to compare that to the loss of the Seabrooks family or say that police officers aren't, aren't ready, willing and able to stand there for eight hours or 16 hours in order to make them come out. But this is a very difficult situation for you to not get frustrated and for not to not let your emotions show as you stand there hour after hour after hour making a simple request that someone put down their weapons and come out and talk. And all of these things going on, the heat in the room, the noises, it's all overstimulating and it's frustrating. And I, that's something that probably nothing is being said about the police officers there, that despite these frustrations, these agitations, you cannot hear it in their voice. They are constantly committed to Mr. Seabrooks' safety. All he needs to do is cooperate. He can come out of there. Drew. Uh, I, I think that would lend to also, uh, if this were the quote execution, uh, you know, I don't think that anybody has said that. Maybe they have, but um, that's that's the go-to phrase usually in situations like this that somehow he was executed. But uh, does anybody in that? Uh, are you hearing any tones of voice that would indicate that they were amped up and ready to kill somebody? If anything, they were just you know, 120 over 80, but remaining completely vigilant and uh, in, in trying to negotiate a peaceful surrender. I mean, that's that's the that's the goal 100% of the time. It's, it just doesn't turn out that way 100% of the time. The suspect is now standing nude, holding knives, cutting himself, and continuing to threaten to kill police officers. Let me tell you from experience, uh, you know, I, kill me in the comments, whatever you want to do. My first major fight as a deputy sheriff was uh, with, you know, I had, I was with my uh, field training officer. We had to fight a guy in the middle of a street who was completely naked and it was pouring down rain. I don't care how strong somebody is or how weak they are or whatever, but when they are naked and when they are completely wet, as, you know, like the shower in the bathroom here. Uh, it is near impossible to to get them under control, and just so now let's throw three knives on top of that and a threat of a gun. I'm, obviously, he can't hide the gun, but um, if he, you know, so it's just it it shouldn't be underestimated. The fact that he's not wearing any clothing means you can't grab onto anything. I mean, you can, but it's not going to be effective. It also changes the way that you talk to the guy. I mean, at that point, he's totally dissociated from his own sense of shame or dignity. Uh, you know that you're not talking to someone who's in the same place that you are mentally. Uh, was this a mental health crisis? Circling back to the beginning of the call, after the two officers made initial contact, other people in the family say, you know, this is totally atypical for him, which I believe. Now, they also said that, you know, he had been working with a lot of youth in the uh, neighborhood, that he had known a lot of people who had lost their lives to violence. I have no doubt that that is something that could weigh heavily on Mr. Seabrooks. However, I don't know if it is strictly that that's informing his uh, decision making process right now, or if it's the drugs or it's both. But the situation is being painted as though Mr. Seabrooks is having strictly and only a mental health crisis, not complicated by drugs or anything else of his own choosing. And the police are ignoring uh, you know, with a lack of empathy or a deficit of empathy for someone in a mental health crisis. They're doing everything they can for this man. And uh, he's clearly uh, showing that he's operating on another level, which I'm not sure that a psychiatrist or other mental health professional would necessarily be ready to deal with 
in that sort of situation. But regardless of whether or not they're ready to step in there or not, the situation tactically is now totally untenable for a civilian to be in there. Uh, they can't put him in front of the door or even on the phone. I know uh, at one point Seabrook said that uh, Patterson PD was intercepting all of his uh, phone calls. One tactic that we will use as negotiators is that we will trap a phone or hotline a phone so that they cannot call other people. We can call your cell phone provider, and if we can uh, demonstrate that we have exigent circumstances to do so, we can not only interrupt a phone call that you are already talking with someone else in order to speak with you, we can also make it so that all of your texts and phone calls go only to the negotiator. Again, this is to prevent for anyone else from influencing you or giving you tactical information or updating you, someone from outside, someone watching the news. We also don't want you to get on the phone with someone that you need to say goodbye with. We want you to focus on the negotiator so that we can continue to build that influencing rapport to change your behavior and get you to come outside and talk with us. Drew. Here we go. Stop, man. Let's get you help you need, man. Put the knives on the floor, Nash. Nobody's going to shoot you, man. Nobody's going to shoot you. All right? Nobody's going to shoot you. Nash, let's put the knives on the floor, dude. Let us get you the help you need. Stop cutting yourself. Just stop. Stop. Let us help you. Stop. Nash, we don't want you to die, man. I need you to put the knife on the ground so we can help you. No, nobody's going to shoot you. Just stop, Nash. Just stop. Nah. Nobody's getting, no, you're not going to do that. No, you don't want to do that. All right? It's not worth it. All right? You got a long life ahead of you. You don't want to end it like this. You keep doing that to your arm. We can't help you. Drop the knives. Just drop the knives, Nash. Look, man, you got to be feeling really crappy right now. Let's get you help. All right? Just stop, man. Just Drop stop. Just stop. Nah, come on. Nah. He's closing the door, but knife to the neck. Nah. Come on. You want to talk to somebody? Yeah. Family or anything like that? Mom. Your mom? What? Okay. Okay. Naj, we can bring you to your mom if you know where she is. Sitting on Sitting. Naj, come on, man. Let's take you to your mom. All right? Let her talk to you. All right? I'm sure she don't want to see you like this. So that's how quick it happens. Uh, you know, uh, with the graphic up here that says four hours and 34 minutes negotiating, uh, you can see the conversation went from stop cutting yourself, come out, come on, Naj, to boom, boom, boom. Because he exited the bathroom. 
with the knives and lunge towards the officers. No other reason than that. It, it's it went from a very peaceful and almost begging and pleading, begging, intensive uh, negotiation to I, I feel threatened and you, you, you should not have done this. There are other angles, perhaps I should have put them in there. But to be honest with you, I was this was a lot to put together, and I was getting tired. But uh, there's two be- there's two bedrooms opposite of the bathroom. We're watching the officer in the hallway. So he charges past the officer that shoots, going after the officer that's in the bedroom. So he was lunging at, at a dead sprint towards the officer with knives in his hands. That's a that's a deadly situation. For those people who scoff and say, "Well, he had knives and he was in a gunfight." get stabbed. I'm sorry, that sounds very, very cruel or mean, but that's a lethal situation. You cannot take being stabbed. It's This is not the movies where you get stabbed and it hurts. And then later you're not even limping. Uh, being stabbed is a lethal situation. The use of force was necessary. And you can hear, I, I didn't cut any of that, that last part. They're sitting there saying, please stop. Will you talk to your mom? Please stop. Please don't do this. You only have one life to live. What else would you have these police officers do? Mental health professionals, if you're out there, call in and, and give us the clue. What was it they were supposed to say after four hours and 34 minutes that would have ended the situation? I feel terrible. I wish he was I wish he was alive because uh, this does terrible things for the narrative of police. It does terrible things to his family. And it cuts short the life of a 31-year-old man with a daughter and a mother and, and all this. It didn't have to come to this at all. And even if it was it was only strictly a mental health crisis if the police only aggravated things if the police had never been called but all i can say is is mr seabrooks made that call this started with him and and, and he was in command the entire time he, he was in command until the police were forced to take command from him because the decisions he was making with that command were to, to charge at a police officer with knives and it's a very tragic situation. Now what's happening is that you have the Black Lives Matter and other movements going out there and they're demanding justice and saying that the police officers go out there. And one person I heard in a report today is saying that the police go out there and they're putting their knees on the neck of the black man. Look at this situation. He was, as I said, again, he was in charge this entire time. You have protesters who are going out there now. One of these officers who was involved in this incident actually owns a restaurant in the area. And mobs have been seen outside and kicking security gates. Now, I'm not sure the extent of the damage or whatever else, but they're demanding justice against the police brutality uh, of this situation. Where was the brutality? There was a flash of violence at at the end, again, initiated by Mr. Seabrooks. And what angers me and what has me set so on edge, because perhaps you can tell, is that I watch these news reports and they have to have gone through this footage to pick out the pieces where they show you know, Mr. Seabrooks reacting to the less lethal rounds coming through the doors. But they must have willfully ignored all of this. They must have seen everything that I've seen and said, I'm going to pull out. Basically, I'm going to throw out 99.9% of this so that I can I can use this to feed my narrative that Mr. Seabrooks was someone who was misunderstood and essentially assassinated by police. And it frustrates me greatly because I don't have a degree in journalism. All I have is the integrity to watch four and a half hours of video and edit as best I can into a presentation to show here in an audio podcast what I saw and what the news is telling you is completely inaccurate. And all I will say is is that copy and paste this situation towards everything else. If you don't know what's going on, it's because the news is misleading you and you can do your own research like I did. And I compel you to do that because you'll find something different 
on what the news is telling you. Drew, I got to get off my soapbox. You go ahead. <laughs> well, you did an amazing job uh, at uh, at watching all of this stuff and following the story. the 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 the, uh, the epilogue to the story, though, is is it's still developing. Uh, the Department of uh, I, I'm sorry, the uh, New Jersey uh, um, the, the Attorney New- General's office. <laughs> Thank you. The New Jersey Attorney General himself came in and did a press conference. It's about 25 minutes. You can watch it on YouTube if you like, where he uh, essentially said, I have now taken control of the Patterson Police Department. Uh, Citing this as an example of some kind of misuse of authority or I I, I don't. Seizing control of the police department is misuse of authority because I would like to know what instructions the attorney general would give to these guys. You know, they had the attorney general's phone number the entire time. Perhaps they should have called him and he could have, uh, you know, let them know what to do. They had, were certainly in contact with the mayor. The mayor remark, remarks on this as saying it is a very sad situation. I think the mayor understands a lot more about what was going on than the, the attorney general was. The mayor was willing to talk to the guy feeling they came out. Uh, mayors are very busy doing whatever it is that they do. And the mayor was willing to talk to him. So it frustrates me that you have a big state agency saying we're going to seize this department because of this incident when the obviously the attorney general's office is who I got this video from. They saw everything I saw. And what would you have the police do differently? At one point, Andrea said in the comments, you know, why don't they retreat out of there? That was something I thought of. Like, what if we just completely did it a different way? What if we just said, you know what? He's in a mental health crisis. He's locked in the bathroom. And uh, Drew, you've talked about this before. What is the police responsibility towards suicidal subject? Suppose we evacuated the family and got the hell out of there. Well, again, he started a fire, okay? They're in an apartment complex at the bottom floor. He starts a fire with his T-shirt. He's obviously got something else in there that he's using to start a fire. Um, Not sure what that was, but he adds plastic to it at one point, okay? I'm not sure how they put the fire out, but he started a fire in there. So again, he's putting everyone in that apartment in danger. They now have an affirmative uh, responsibility to stay there and to take him into custody, not only because of the suicidal talk, but because he's essentially committing arson for lack of a better word. And again, like he's going through something. I understand that. So I'm not, I'm not angry with him, but I'm frustrated that again, the news is trying to paint this as though the police were had an itchy trigger finger and went in there frustrated or whatever else and took his life and they didn't need to. Cause that's not what happened. Again, it's Drew not- off the soapbox. Go ahead. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you, David J., who uh, just left a hundred dollar super chat. He's always uh, he's he's keeping me uh, in the ice cream this month. I got to be honest. Um, but anytime you lose control, anytime the people lose control of of their police department, uh, it, you know, when there's over governance, um, I, I don't think it's a good thing. I, I don't know exactly what precipitate like if this is about well the community doesn't trust them anyway this is out of protection for the police for us to take control here but they're going to install their own chief they, they, they've taken that away from you know so the people elect a mayor and the mayor wants to elect a chief or select a chief you've taken that power away from the citizens that are there um when they had a recent re- uh, election when the new mayor was co- came in they selected a police chief who was the first Muslim police chief. And that's all they kept touting him as the first Muslim police chief. And yeah, great. That's, that's, uh, that is a milestone. Uh, but that's all you can say about it because the crime rate went through the roof just because somebody is Muslim or just because somebody is black or just be even just because they're white, like 
nobody's really getting selected just because they're white. Although the mainstream media would have you uh, believe otherwise, but uh, just because you're the first uh, gay black um, uh, spokesperson in the white house doesn't mean you're intelligent enough to hold the position. We, we, we have to talk about qualifications when it comes to the safety of the people involved. And this is once you've taken it away from the people who are affected the most, you know, the stakeholders, I, I think this is a completely slippery slope. I, I think this is a little bit of an overreach, but again, I don't, there are a lot of things that I don't know about Patterson. I just think that using this as the precipitating event uh, and somehow racializing this, somehow adding a racial aspect to this, this is a horrible thing. This is this is caving to, this is not having a conversation. Everybody always wants to have, quote, a conversation when something like this happens. And what the conversation normally is, is you're going to browbeat me and tell me how horrible I am, and then I'm just going to walk away frustrated. There are no conversations. Because if there were conversations, the our chats would be loaded right now with people saying, you know, I didn't think of that, or you guys are just a bunch of racists. Well, people, it's not like that. People make up their minds and they buy into the narrative. And I didn't come here tonight with uh, the intention that I could change anyone's mind about how they feel about the police because people have their dis their decision made up. But I want anyone who's angry with the police or angry with how their local government is handled or angry, angry with anyone in authority or just angry that this man died, I want you to, to look at the news and question what you're hearing. I don't care if it's CNN. I don't care if it's Fox. I don't care where you're at on the dial. The things that people tell you, it's fundamentally inaccurate. It's lazy journalism. It's yellow journalism. It's bad journalism. It's journalism to drive an agenda. It's journalism designed to sell commercials. But it's not the truth. And if you want the truth, you have to look into it for yourself. And I'm sorry that's a lot of work. But when I see people out there protesting and demanding justice for him, when the police broke their backs, bending over backwards, trying to save his life from himself, I can't stand it. I cannot stand that yellow journalism. Drew, I'm... It I have and to like, uh, I have to like take sedatives or something. A third soapbox. Uh, yeah. When, when you say the word justice, uh, when you keep saying justice for Najee, just, this is not just you're not, what you're not, uh, seeking is justice because you're, what you're saying is what happened to him was unjust. It just happened. It's not unjust. Uh, what you're seeking is revenge. And that's, that's a completely different, um, virtue than uh, justice. La Lady Justice is blind. Uh, there's a blindfold. And, and you know, if, if that were a white guy in the bathroom, would they have negotiated for four hours and shot him when he charged out? Yes. The answer to that is yes. The of negotiations didn't end. They were aborted by the subject. They were still standing there watching him flay his arm, saying, please stop. Please stop doing this. Now the, now, the officer that had to shoot him is going through something because he never wanted to shoot someone, let alone someone who was clearly having some kind of crisis, whether it was drug fueled or, or a mental health problem or whatever. But you stand there watching somebody harm themselves and that image will stay inside you. So, again, I don't want to take anything away from the Seabrooks family. I know they love their brother. They love their son. But these police officers are being affected, too. And it's not enough that they have to go to a job and see this and deal with this. But then they have to be hung out to drive by the media and their own their own state government saying, well, you did something wrong. When I watch that and maybe it's not perfect. Sure, there's there's things to learn. Uh, 
perhaps there's other tactics or something they could have employed, but ultimately they were still working the case. They were still trying to do it. They were still committed and engaged to a positive outcome when he came out of the bathroom on his own, not unarmed. So that process was still going forward until he stopped it. Yes, Keith, I'm on my fourth south by. So, <laughs> so there is uh, just just so you'll know that th there is uh, discussion afoot in the criminal justice world in the in the law enforcement world. How do we handle these? Uh, I know that there are agencies in California that don't respond to these at all. That if you're in uh, that you know, and and we've we've struggled with that too. Where I worked, I don't know what the current policy is. I'm not going to do any talking for them. I can tell you in the past that. If, if the, the subject is suicidal and they're in their home alone, there's, there's nobody else that, that uh, is in danger and the family is calling, um, yeah, we're, we're working on odd options too, like unfortunately. And as long as the neighbors aren't in danger and the people on the inside of the house aren't in danger, if they decide to take their own life, they decide to take their own life. That's kind of not, that's not our fault. And it's not our business because what's going to happen is we show up and we have to take the action that you don't want us to take. Uh, this, this actually exact scenario played out. Uh, there was a deputy sheriff that it was his, he had come from a specialty assignment. It was his first day back out on the street. And he got called to a guy having a mental breakdown, just like this, similar to this. Uh, the guy was sitting in a lawn chair out in the, uh, in the driveway or something similar. And uh, he went up to just have a casual conversation with him and the guy charged at him with the knife. And, and what are you going to do at that point? So, of course, the news on the news, the, the, the family is all upset and they say, that's not what we called you here to do. But what do you expect me to do? I'm not going to take I'm not going to take a butcher knife to the jugular. I, I don't know what you expect the police to do in a, in a situation like that. It's very unfortunate and it takes its toll on the officers. Those officers are, are, are never going to be the same and their families are never going to be the same. So, you know, I'm not begging for sympathy over him uh, because he deserves as much, you know, empathy uh, you can give, but you know, the 30, the, the, the previous 31 years, he may have been a saint. Um, but that one, one day when he made that final decision, uh, this is what happened. And this is unfortunate for everybody involved. He may still have been a saint up until that moment that he charged. And at that point, sure. you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because I don't expect that police officer in that bedroom to take a knife. Uh, he deserves to go home to his family just like Seabrooks did. And unfortunately right. Seabrooks, like I said, again, I don't want to get on a fifth soapbox, but he, he took, he took charge of that situation. The police got there, he stayed in command and that's what he did with this command. And I'm just, I'm really sorry that it happened. And, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to make light of, light of it at all or use his death to further my own agenda because a life's been lost and that's the biggest tragedy. But we have, as a society, we need to talk about it. And most of all, we need to talk about our news sources because I put on Instagram today a reel uh, that showed uh, the local ABC affiliate uh, describing how the police response to this incident was. And it's just, it's patently false. Now I understand when you're a news reporter and you just get to the scene, there's going to be different people talking. You're going to hear maybe some things that are wrong. People are confused. The timeline events of events has been clarified. It's been three weeks. It's time to take that video down. It's time to, it's time to have at the end of every news broadcast, 
five minutes instead of showing a water skiing squirrel, just say, this is the stuff we got wrong this week, folks. We're sorry about that. We did the best we can. But these are the corrections and delay the matter straight. And for, this, for our integrity, we're going to tell you what we got wrong. And here's the truth. We don't have a single news station that will say, for our integrity, we're going to tell you what we got wrong. And it's ridiculous. You know, newspapers used to print corrections. I don't know if they do anymore because I haven't looked at a newspaper in like 10 years. But I know the news isn't doing it. Right. It is a missed opportunity. Uh, and, and, and as you know, in this world, the, uh, the front page headline is going to be the front page headline. And the correction, if there is one, is going to be on the ninth page in the 14th paragraph. So uh, they're in it to make money. And what they're doing is kicking a community that's already down and kicking them down farther by perpetuating that that information and that lie. Speaking of going uh, down, Drew, if I don't pull up, I'm going to crash. So do we have some funny voicemails to play? I want to get the Wolfpack involved in the show. Uh, Deadleg was texting me earlier saying that uh, Colin's studio might have gone down earlier. I don't know if that's back up, but I'm sure we have some voicemails to play. And I could uh, go full flapjacks with a ghost bed ad read if you need me to while you nope. set that up. I got it. Um yeah. This is a prepaid call from 10 An inmate at the county correctional facility. All phone calls are subject to recording and monitoring. To decline this call, press 9 now and to accept this call, press 1 now. Thank you. Your call has been accepted. Hi, call center. Drew and John, you are both amazing. Sorry for not being able to talk more last week. I ran out of minutes on my phone card. Keep up the amazing show. Hashtag free, John. Dean, comrades. It's good to hear from you again, John and Drew. I hope you. I hope the comrades are doing well. Okay. Uh, great show. Great show. Oh, damn it. I'm trying to search when I'm on the phone. Com Center. It's Micah. Just calling back halfway through another week. And I just want to say things are a little better. Love the show. Love the wolf pack. And I, I heard Drew Breezy loud and clear about the echo issues, about the phone issues over the last few weeks. So I did something I haven't done in seven years. I updated my phone. So hopefully you can hear me crystal clear, Wolfpack. I'm going to keep calling in. I'm going to keep leaving messages. And, uh, yeah, Drew Breezy got me to do something my wife hasn't been able to in a long time. That's get rid of an old phone and upgrade. So hopefully you guys hear clearly. Looking forward to the next comp center. We'll see you then. Guns up, giddy up. Guns up, giddy up. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that, that I got something, uh, got someone to do something their wife wasn't able to. And Micah, I was about to say that uh, that's low hanging fruit, and I knew you would go for it. And Micah, um, that was uh, a wonderful update to your phone. It is like we are sitting in the break room, uh, playing with the salt and pepper shakers, looking longingly into one another's eyes, wondering why John is trying to butt in on our conversation about smart things. Uh, John, I have nothing else. I'm I'm drained. Uh, I I've been beat up by equipment. I have uh, I I my the VCR that I have used is uh, 
I didn't set it for SP. I set it for ELP. So uh, we've uh, all done that. Yeah. Where you're running run out, out of space. Yeah. Yes. So uh, we're probably going to wrap it up here. Uh, there's going to be a great show tomorrow uh, on, on what we call Breakdown Fridays. I want you to, to, to head over to our YouTube channel. We're starting to retool it. Um, uh, Deadleg is working very diligently and very hard on the website. That'll be coming up soon. But we've also uh, kind of uh, assembled or um, created some, play, some new playlists to make it a little bit more easy to, to follow. And also... There is a new trend in the YouTube world that uh, is um, podcasts. So uh, these uh, these will all be available on YouTube Music soon as podcasts through YouTube. Um, and as uh, Eric has announced, we are still exploring our Patreon and what we're going to be using, uh, what we're going to be doing for content uh, in Patreon. So. Stay tuned. I'm really excited about what we're doing. Uh, I think the guy sitting to my right, your left, is an amazing talent. Thank you. That's and true. it's somebody that uh, I couldn't, uh, I, I, I definitely would not have survived today with it as well as Josh. Quite, so, well, yeah, we got you and Josh. Wanted to mention you, we're only days away from the meetup in Clayton. If you're a fan of the Wolfpack and you have like extra dollars lying around, Go ahead and buy a plane ticket or a train ticket or whatever you got to do, but get down to Clayton, North Carolina. This is April 12th. This is a Wednesday. We're meeting up at Instill Distilling Company for a shindig, failure to stop. The entire gang will be there, plus Josh, and uh, we're going to have a great time. Then there's going to be an after party at the studio. Uh, Drew and I are going to have Com Center on Thursday. It's possible we'll have some people live in studio for that. The three of us, uh, me, Josh, who's behind the scenes, and Drew will finally be united. Uh, I have been ordered by <laughs> Chief Keefe. He says, do it. He says, uh, you do a one-year birthday shout-out to one more, and I'm out of here. I believe that is a directive. So our, uh, I don't want, even want to call them a cousin, a cousin podcast, but our friends from Cincinnati, they're coming up on one year of one more, and I'm out of here. They had Josh Deadleg on recently. They had Drew on recently. I think I'm on tap for this weekend. We'll see if it works out. Uh, Chief, I'm tentatively planning on being in there. on being there. Should be a good time. Uh, thank you, everyone, for bearing with me tonight as I uh, I, I did lots of cocaine and, and, and Gatorade to be ready for the show so I could have enough energy. I woke up at six in the morning, went to work all day, and I, I'm, on I'm, I'm on fumes right now. So I'm about to burn out. Thank you, everyone, for supporting the Wolf Pack. Uh, thank you for supporting us. Hit like, download, subscribe, be a member of the Wolf Pack. Uh, thank you to David. This podcast is brought to you by David J. Uh, Drew, take us out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to take you out. I, I, uh, I'll try my best. But uh, on behalf of Andre Uplate, who's been in the chat with us all night, uh, there's a fellow by the name of Eric Tanzi who I'm going to do a show with tomorrow, our Friday breakdown. John, who is at, at difficult to look at pictures on Instagram. I am Drew at Drew underscore Breezy and our good friend at Deadleg Media. Uh, that's it for tonight's show. Please tell four of your friends and make two of them watch it. And don't forget to tell your Aunt Sally. Good night, everybody. Wolfpack, I cannot tell you how much I love you. Guns up. Giddy up. Good night. John, don't go anywhere. I won't. I never do.